I'm going to go and read our passage and then pray for our time. Mark 9, verses 2 to 13 says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to, them, said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of them, of him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this passage and just pray that uh, as we walk through it and as we consider the gospel of Mark this morning, that you would challenge our hearts um, to listen to you, uh, to follow you, uh, to obey your direction in our lives. Uh, God, we just, we ask that you would be shaping and molding our hearts to be ones that are uh, fully laid down for you, God, that we would set aside all else in this life and chase after you, Jesus, and let you lead in every aspect. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so um, how, how does, i got a question to start out for you guys. How does, uh, how does your resume look? How's your resume looking? How's your, how's, anyone, anyone, anyone made a, Mark's laughing. When's the last time you made a resume, Mark? <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you wanna, what? Oh, that's a great question. Does anybody have an example of a resume? Hit it. Do it. Oh, hey. And this is my resume. Look at that. I need a resume. This is my resume. Uh, don't. I tried to make it small so you can read. Um, too much. This is literally my resume. I didn't have a good picture to draw from, but. Um, yeah, like Mark said, you kind of just add to it as your life progresses, the next thing on, the next thing on, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you have a bad experience, you just kind of like slide that one off the resume, make sure that doesn't get seen too much. Um, but a resume has a number of things, Isaiah, I'm glad you asked. A resume is something that you would provide to someone that might employ you to do work for them, right? And you say, hey, listen, future potential employer, these are all the things I have done and why you ought to hire me for this position that I am applying for. Uh, it has all sorts of things, uh, like this one does. Uh, it has your current contact information. Uh, it has your experience in terms of your education, the jobs you've had in the past. And these are things that you would give to an employer and say, see, I am made for this job. I am, I am one that can step into this role. And, and these are the things that you can actually go talk to people that I've worked with in the past and say, how did Blake do when he was working for Acorn Growth Companies in 2000? You, know, you can go back to this person that I've said, hey, call them. They'll vouch for me. They'll tell you how terrible I was and how you should give me some grace and, and bring me on. Um, so so they, they, you know, it might have some awards or things that you're interested in, hobbies, things you're involved in. It tells a lot about what your life has been up until this point, right? 
And the, the truth is, like, there's some jobs that you're just, you're not cut out for. Like, you don't have the resume to do that job. Like, I don't have the resume to be an astronaut. I, I don't. Like, if I went to NASA and was like, hey, you know, I really am interested in rockets. I think they're really neat, and how fast they go up is very cool. Um, you know, I'd like to build one with you. Uh, and I gave them this resume, they'd be like, you are a nerd. You like Excel, and, uh, and apparently the Bible, and we're not into either of those things. So um, anyway, so like, so th this would not be a resume you'd give to be a rocketeer or a rocket engineer or whatever, right? My resume doesn't match that position. Uh, it also doesn't match the position of like applying, you know, trying to play for an NBA basketball team. Like my height isn't on here, but you know, they'd be pretty obvious, right? My accomplishments do not add up to becoming an NBA basketball player right now. I cannot do anything to make that resume change. Um, so why, why am I talking about resumes? You might be wondering, Blake, you're crazy. I don't know why we're talking about resumes this morning. Okay, first of all, if you don't have a resume as a young person, you should get one. And you should, you should be sure you're ready to give that out, right? Um, it, to, to someone that might employ you. These are good things to have to really you know, take, it, take a record of what you've done. So good thing to have. But why resumes today? Um, well, I'm going to ask you this question. What kind of things do you think might be included in the resume of Jesus, okay? What do you think Jesus' resume might include, okay? Yep, we got an idea, yeah. I'm perfect. I'm perfect. <laughs> It'd just be one, I, it, it wouldn't be said, I'd just say I am, that's what it would say, right? Yeah, it'd say, what do you think the resume would say? Moses. Moses, say Moses. Moses is my buddy. <laughs> I know Moses and I am the I am. Um, very good. What's a resume? Oh my gosh. Um, so, so I've got a few things. I think Mark so far to this point has given us a few ideas of things that might be on Jesus' resume, right? Uh, we've seen Jesus do and say some powerful things. And if you were presenting a resume for, say, I don't know, the position of Messiah, right? Like, <laughs> right? There might be some things that you're looking at his life going, some of this stuff matches up, and I might consider this person to fulfill the role of Christ, right? Okay, so we've seen Jesus' miracles, right? We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him heal the sick. We've seen him still a raging storm while he was on the water, okay? We've seen him feed 5,000 men alone and children and their wives. We've seen him feed 4,000 alone with very minimal rations, right? And to have leftovers afterward. We've seen in the book of Mark, miracle after miracle after miracle of Jesus in front of the people in Israel. We've also seen him, seen him bring very powerful teachings that uh, you know, challenge and encourage our hearts, uh, make us think twice about like, how we're ordering and structuring ourselves. And I listed a few just like red letter statements from Jesus throughout Mark that I thought, that's cool, and that's cool, and that's cool. So, so if you appreciate these, great. You, know, you can clap or whatever. Um, okay, so Mark 1.15, he says this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe, right? Okay, that's when he says that a lot. It turns out he talks about that pretty often, so much so that he only says it one time. Anyway, um, Mark 2, 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark 2, 27. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mark 3, 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
Mark 4, verse 20. But those who are sown on the good soil are the ones who will hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Mark 6, 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And finally, another one, Mark 7, 14 to 15. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Mark has presented to his hearers a, a resume, I'll, I will attest to you. This is who Jesus is. This is the good news of Christ. And Mark's hearers, again, are this persecuted church in Rome and those around. He's saying to them, Jesus is still the Christ. These are the things that he did, and these are the things that he said. Continue to hope in him. Continue to place your faith and trust in him. So a question for us is, as we look at this is, okay, these are some things that Jesus did and some things that Jesus said. So, so far in the book of Mark, what has been the response to him? Is everyone on board? Is everyone on board with Jesus being the Messiah as you look at it in the book of Mark? No? Isaiah says no. Anybody else also agree with Isaiah? He says no, that not everyone thinks he's the Messiah. Eli, maybe? Not sure? Okay. Yeah? Yeah, not, not everyone's on board, right? Um, there's a few responses that we're seeing to Jesus uh, among the religious, among the, the powerful, and among the disciples. The religious, in response to what Jesus is saying and doing, what has the religious response to Jesus been? Anybody have an idea? What has been the response of the religious leaders? Pharisees, Sadducees, anybody want to throw it out there? Blasphemous. He's blasphemous, okay? Yeah. The, 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 he's, he's, he's breaking the Sabbath, right? That's blasphemy. What else? He's critically insane. People, yeah, you think he's crazy. Yeah, what do you think? He can't fit in an outer space thing. Uh, maybe, I'm not sure. All right. <laughs> he actually created the outer space thing, but okay, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> other responses from the religious, what do you think? He's threatening our position. So their response, and I would agree, blasphemous, threatening our position, um, a, a, some sort of threat, is found in Mark 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is when he said, uh, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Immediately he goes out after the healing at the Sabbath, and sa the, the Pharisees say, we're going to go out and try and destroy this man. This is a threat to our power, and we are going to squelch it at all costs. The response of the religious has been to seek to destroy him. What's been the response of the politically powerful? Any ideas on this one? Herod wants to kill him too, right? Herod also wants to kill him. And Herod actually thinks that Jesus is the reincarnation of John the Baptist. He's scared of him, again feels threatened by his power and his miracles, and wants to also uh, be done with Jesus. So the religious, in response to Jesus' resume, and the politically powerful, in response to Jesus' resume, are going... This guy can't stick around. He is a threat to us. He's a threat to our power. He's a threat to our control. We need to destroy him. We need to remove him. 
What has been the response of the disciples? Confusion. Confusion. Yeah, confusion, right? They haven't perfectly understood. They haven't perfectly understood at all. We find them very often wondering what in the world Jesus means by the things he's saying, right? They are not perfectly grasping what is going on at all. But are they listening? Yeah, they are listening. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, Luke, Luke preached, and just many thanks to Luke as well as uh, Justin for filling in for me over the past two weeks, just a blessing and just an encouragement. I know you guys all were encouraged uh, by their preaching, and, and so I just thank you guys for that. But like a couple weeks ago, uh, uh, when Luke was preaching, he preached on Peter's response to Jesus' question. Okay, yeah, I know that the people say I might be Elijah or, or what, what, some great prophet or whatever, but who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter answered correctly, you are the Christ. He says, as I look at your resume, as I look at the things that you have done in our presence thus far, and the things that you have said in the face of leaders that could destroy you in the physical sense, in the fleshly sense, you're the Christ. What else could you be? Peter confesses, you are the Christ. But then, right, last week, we see Peter, the very same Peter that just said, you are the Christ, rebuke the Christ for thinking that he was going to suffer. Peter cannot accept the narrative that the Christ is going to die. And so he calls to Jesus and says, no, that's not possible. The Messiah cannot be killed. Jesus sets him straight immediately and, and actually calls out Satan for putting this idea in Peter's uh, mouth. And uh, he then calls the disciples to do what? Take up their cross and follow Jesus. Jesus is challenging them in some tremendous ways, but a key marker of the disciple is that they are listening. And they are hearing the words of Jesus. And they are following the words of Jesus. They don't understand it. They are struggling to grasp what in the world Jesus is doing, what he's aiming for, what his goal is. They're looking for him to stand up and take the country by charge and move it in a direction of power. But he's not doing that. And they're very confused. And what we'll see as we go through this time, this these chapters, the end of chapter 8 and, and chapter 9, is this hinge point in the book of Mark, where uh, at this point he's been kind of displaying, this is the ministry of Jesus, and this is who he was about, and this is what he said. And from this point on, after this little section, he's going to turn his face toward Jerusalem. And you've heard it a couple times already, he's going to say it again here soon, that where I am headed, disciples, is to give my life on the cross, and then I'll raise again. And they are absolutely confused by this. In spite of their confusion, in spite of their not understanding what Jesus is doing, I want to point out that these disciples do not tuck tail and run from him. At this point, they keep following. You could look at what Jesus is saying and things he's doing up to this point and go, I don't understand, and I'm really confused, and I just want to run away, okay? And, and you couldn't blame one of these disciples for doing that. They don't understand what Jesus is doing. 
And so that brings us up to our passage today. After he challenges them to take up their cross and follow him, he calls aside three of his disciples to go up to a mountain with him. And this is like just a trippy uh, event in, in scripture, okay? This, this moment and the trans, called the transfiguration. I don't even know, like, I think we just you made this word up, transfiguration, to describe what is going on here, because I'm not sure what else, what else you use it for. But um, six days after, he, after the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, and, and after him kind of calling them to lay down their lives and to, uh, to follow him, to take up their cross, uh, he calls Peter and James and John and leads them to a high mountain by themselves. And it says, and he was transfigured by them, or before them. In verse 3, the description of this transfiguration is that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as more white than anybody could possibly bleach them. Okay, Whiter than our tables, white, white so much that they are glowing around him, radiant his clothes were, okay? He just changed before them into this glowing white figure. Simultaneously, verse 4, it says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. So not only do they get up this mountain, they see Jesus shining bright, as bright as they could possibly imagine, And with them, they recognize Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus. We don't really know, we're not really told, like, how Peter, James, and John recognize that this is Elijah and Moses. We don't, it's really speculation to discern, like, how they knew this was. Either Jesus told them afterward, hey, you know, that was Elijah and Moses. Or, like, the content of their conversation maybe is such that they understood that, wow, that guy looks like he's crossed a Red Sea. You know, like, I don't know, like, I don't know, we don't know what it is about the scenario that said, that's Elijah and that's Moses. And Peter's initial response uh, confessed by Mark that this is really a response of confusion, okay? He says, let's go camping. Like, he says, let's build some tents. It is good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, now, it's not like a, a weird thing to do necessarily because tabernacles in the Old Testament are, are this place of the presence of God. And so Peter's not totally out of left field by wanting to build a place to recognize the moment and like camp there in a way. Um, but verse 6 tells us he said this because he did not know what to say. <laughs> he was terrified. I mean, and you would be too, right? You, you come up to the mountain with Jesus, you're following up there, and as soon as you get up to the top of the mountain, Jesus' clothes change to the brightest white you've ever seen, and two men appear immediately around him, and those men are revealed to you that it's Elijah and Moses. You would be freaked out, and you wouldn't know what to do. I mean, there's probably a number of movements that would happen within your body in that scenario that could be uh, challenging, right? Like, that would be a shocking moment. And so Peter admittedly says, hey, let's build some tents, and he's only saying it not out of some sort of uh, understanding, but rather out of confusion of the moment and fear of what is going on. Then, verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. As soon as this cloud comes, and the voice says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Verse 8 goes on and says, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him 
but Jesus only. You just look at this and go, what in the world just happened, right? Like, all right, Peter, James, John, come up to this mountain with me. I've got something to show you. It's Elijah and Moses and me brightly white shining. Like, what in the world is going on here? Um, Jesus is revealing a sign to them. You, you know that these disciples do not understand what's going on, and they need something to cling to and understand that they can trust that this is indeed the Christ. I mean, Jesus is now at this point revealing to them that he is going to give his life on the cross. They can't accept that narrative. It is, it is not in their comprehension, okay? And so Jesus calls them up and gives them this heavenly sign. It is a powerful moment for them. One that I think affirms to them that, yeah, our understanding of you as the Christ is good. It's a sign they can hold on to as they watch with the rest of the book, the Messiah headed to the cross. Mark continues to describe them coming down the mountain, verse 9, and it says this, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Again, the disciples, I mean, you just have to put yourself there and, like, think, you know, they don't understand anything. Everything he's saying right now is just more confusion to them. It just doesn't add up for them. Verse 10 says, uh, they kept this, so they kept this matter to themselves, but they were questioning in their hearts what this rising from the de- dead might mean. Again, every word Jesus says, the disciples are going, I just don't get it. Why in the world was Elijah there? Why was Moses there? Why are you going to the cross? Why, like, what is going on? They're in complete confusion. Don't understand where Jesus is headed with, headed with this. And so they ask him, probably searching for some sort of understanding of what they are experiencing in this moment. They say, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They just, they don't know what to say still. They're grasping for an explanation for what they're experiencing. Jesus responds to them, Elijah does come first, verse 12. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased. They did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Uh, Matthew 17, 13 adds on to this account by saying, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Okay, so how do, I di- how do we digest this? I mean, for Peter, James, and John, this just has to be one of the craziest experiences of their life. I mean, they've seen some pretty amazing things with Jesus, like him calming the seas on the water and providing this food to so many people they can't even imagine it. But here, they're taken away by themselves and go up the mountain and see Jesus change in this way. And coming down the mountain, Jesus basically says to them, yeah, Elijah must come but he's going to suffer. And also, by the way, the Son of Man is also going to suffer. (laughs) 
there's a couple things that, that I think we need to take away from this passage. The first is to step back and remember the hearers of our passage originally. Those who first heard this message, the Gospel of Mark, this letter is written to the city of Rome, Christians there. You guys have heard me say it over and over and over again. The encouragement from Mark to the believers in Rome is that you should not be surprised that persecution has come into your life. Why? Elijah was persecuted, okay? John the Baptist was persecuted. Jesus went to the cross for you. And he says to his disciples, if they did these things unto me, what do you think they will do to my followers? It is important for the hearers of Mark's gospel to hear the clear reminder throughout Mark's gospel that, that this persecution is not easy. But we should not be surprised when people are offended by the name of Jesus. He has called us to place our faith in him and him alone for salvation. He has called us to testify to the fact that he is the truth, that he is the way, that he is the life, and that there is no other way to the Father except through him. This is an offensive message. The world does not like this. A little bit later today, as we're closing uh, in our time of prayer, we're going to be praying for the persecuted church. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. To this day, there are countries all over this map where it is illegal to testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That it is illegal to go out and tell somebody, hey, the Lord Jesus has died on your behalf. He has paid the penalty for your sin. It is illegal throughout the world to do that. And so as ones who are privileged in this part of the country to speak freely of our faith in Jesus, we have to reconcile and understand with our brothers across the world that they live Mark's gospel. They understand the suffering servant of Jesus is one who suffers with them. In one of the commentaries I was reading, uh, it pointed out something interesting um, about the Apostles' Creed, actually. Um, anyone, anyone know the Apostles' Creed? Okay, it's a testimony of what we believe about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, how much of Jesus' life do you think is included in the Apostles' Creed? Just like, what do you think, how much do you think is in there? about during his life, not his birth, not his death, the in-between his birth and death. How much do you think is said about Jesus and the Apostles' Creed? Maybe? Less? I don't know. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe fine. I'm, not, I'm not sure about a percentage. I'm not sure about a percentage. It says one thing. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Think about all the things we talked about from, the Mar from Mark's Gospel all the miracles that Jesus did, all the teachings Jesus said, and the one thing we remember as Christians about Jesus' life is that he came with the purpose to die on our behalf. That's his resume for us. That's his resume as Jesus the Christ. He suffered and died for us under the hands of a man who does not deserve it.
so we should not be surprised as we go through our faith journey in life that we come against tension and friction and brokenness. It is going to be a reality. It's going to be a reality in our world. It's going to be a reality in our church. It's going to be a reality in our families, okay? Tension and brokenness will come, and the devil will use that against us, and the world will use that against us, and the religious will use that against us, but if we keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ the Son, we will know that he has suffered with us completely and understands us wholly. This is his testimony. The second thing I want to challenge us to see in this passage uh, is, is something I noticed as, as I was thinking about the transfiguration, this, this sign, right? I mean, what an amazing sign that these three disciples got to see. They got to go up this mountain, and the heavens open up, right? And God speaks down to them and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And two prophets of old show up and are talking to Jesus. Like, how mind-blowing would that experience be, right? That is a heavenly sign, right? That's a heavenly sign. Okay, so it made me remember uh, to Mark 8, verse 11 to 13, which says this. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. You might remember, there was like one trip across the sea to this moment, talked to the Pharisees, this one little conversation of two verses. They wanted him to give them a heavenly sign, and he left. That was the only interaction on that trip across the sea. He just came, they challenged him for a heavenly sign, he said, peace, I'm out. It can be very easy for us as Christians, as pre-Christians, okay? Christians are pre-Christians, right? To go to God and say, listen, like, if you just give me a sign, then I will follow you. Then I will listen to you. If you just give me a sign, then, then I'll do whatever you want to do if you just give me a sign. Who was given a sign in Mark's gospel? The confused, misunderstood, lack of understanding, frustrated, terrified disciples who keep on listening to Jesus. Not the Pharisee that goes to God, if you give me a sign, then I will follow you with my all-powerful life. What did the Pharisees think they were doing, right? They said, will you prove it to us with a heavenly sign, right, that you're God, and then we will hail you as Christ. No, it took a disciple who would go to Jesus and say, when he says, who do you say I am? Well, when I look at your resume, Jesus, I think you're the Christ. To that disciple... A sign is given, not because he demanded it, but because he listened to what Jesus was saying. And so I challenge you, whatever you're facing, 
careful that you're not a Pharisee who demands of God a sign without listening, listening to what God has said to you. Jesus is good to us, okay? He is, I, I, I guarantee that every follower of Jesus in this room can testify to the fact that God has given you some sort of sign in your life. He has given you a guidepost here and there. It's not something flashy. It's just something very personal that he has told you that you might keep going on. He didn't give it to you because you demanded it. He gave it to you because you listened to his gospel, you repented, you believed, and you followed him by faith. And after you did that, he came alongside you and said, I've got you. I've got you. This is a silly one for me. I mean, um, it, it's a small one, but it's, it, it's been important. You know, God has spoken to me different signs throughout my life. And when we came down to Clearwater uh, 10, 11 years ago now, uh, we didn't know, like, we don't know what we're doing. Let's be honest, we don't know what we're doing now. Okay, it's been 10 years and we still don't know what we're doing. Um, but when we first got here, you're just going, and God, like, could really use a sign, like some flashing lights to say, like, yeah, you're here, and this is where you're supposed to be. God doesn't do that. He didn't give me some big flashing sign. He just asked us to continue to trust him and follow. Okay? Um, and through a number of ways, he just continued to remind us that he's our provider. He sees us, and he is providing, and he will continue to provide. And so I've told this before. I can't remember when I've told this last, but um, in, our, in our early times here, the Lord on, on a few occasions just kind of like dropped $20 bills at us. Just like not getting all prosperity gospel on you or whatever. But, but literally like walking down the sidewalk and, you know, you might find some change, right? Like you might find a dime here or there or whatever. But like as we were struggling with, God, how am I going to like make this work? Like, I don't see the cash flow coming in to do what you've called us to do, right? I'm not seeing these things match up. But as I'm walking and praying, God just like 20 bucks. I'm going like, I never find money. This is weird, you know? Found $20. Uh, it happened to us twice walking, uh, once through some random check, actually like some, some repair on my car, like some appearance allowance for a sticker I had on my Honda Civic. It was $20 again, you know? And again, very personal to me, but I just took it as God reminding me that, like, I've got you. $20 isn't going to solve your problem, but I just want to let you know I see you and just keep trusting me and following me. I've got you. Okay? I don't know if you've had similar signs or similar things you've walked through as you've followed Jesus, but he is a God who reassures you and comes behind you and says, I am here with you. I know it doesn't add up. I know you're confused about the future, but trust me and listen to me and follow me. My son has died on your behalf. Lay down your life, take up your cross, and follow me where I want to take you. I think the reason that Jesus invites Peter, James, and John up to this mountain is because he knows they're confused. He knows they don't understand what's going on. And he wants them, he's about to turn toward Jerusalem and go trajectory toward the cross, okay? And it's not going to get any less confusing along the way. 
it's going to get harder as Jesus like continues to make division and the crowds start to dwindle. Okay. He wants them to hold on to something. I'm here. I know you're listening to me and I see you. Trust me and continue to follow me. Can you imagine Peter's experience, right? Like, you're the Christ. You're right, Peter. And then the very next moment, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, no, 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 you can't. And then Jesus calls you Satan. Like, and then, like, you're, as you're, if you're Peter, you were like, what? I can't get this thing right. You know, he's just stuck. And Jesus lovingly brings him up the mountain with him and says, I've got you. You're right. I am the Christ. It's just going to look a little different than you expected. So trust me and follow me. I challenge you this morning, know that if you follow Jesus, your life isn't going to be perfect. There will be tension, there will be opposition, there will be challenges. But also know this, that the Lord Jesus is with you every single moment. Don't look for some fantastic sign for him to prove himself to you. He has proved himself to you on the cross. Allow him to come in and comfort you where he can. Okay, he will do it. I guarantee he's done it for me. I guarantee he will do it for you also. But you have to trust him. He is after your heart. He wants you to walk by faith just as he had the disciples walk by faith as he was in their very presence, right? We look at them and go, oh man, if I was in the presence of Jesus, I too would have followed him. You're going, not the testimony from Mark. They are shaky at best in following Jesus through this. So I encourage you this morning, if, if, you, if the questions aren't adding up and the answers aren't coming to you right now in your life, do not worry, do not fret. Jesus is with you. Go to him, seek him, sit at his feet and call out to him and ask him for guidance and he will help you in your time of need. He knows what you're going through and he's going through it with you. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your son, Jesus Christ. We're so thankful um, in his perfect revelation of his character and his nature and his identity to us. In his incarnation, um, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, God, in, in the life that he lived before his disciples. There were so many opportunities, Lord, for, for him to take on power of this world, but he had his eyes fixed on a cross a joy that was set before him. And so God, just as Justin challenged us last week, I pray that we would be a people that would deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Lord, we testify that we don't know what is to come. But Lord, we proclaim and testify to our souls, to our hearts, that you do, and that's enough for us. We'll trust you one step at a time, Lord. So help us, God, to cling to you in every relationship, in every decision we have. Help us cling to you with our families, with our friendships, with our church, with our jobs, with our lives, God, help us to cling to you.
You are the Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.